can you be contemplative and take a step back when the situation in the society and the murderous ways in which black people get treated in this country continue to happen on a regular loop? Welcome to Contemplating Now, a podcast focused on the intersection of contemplation and social justice. Through interviews with scholars, mystics, and activists, this podcast will focus on contemplative spiritualities, direct relationship with issues of social justice. I'm your host, Cassidy Hall, a filmmaker, podcaster, pastor, and student, and I'm here to learn with you. Dr. Anthea Butler is Professor of Religious Studies at the University of Pennsylvania and also the Chair of the Department of Religious Studies. Her new book is White Evangelical Racism, The Politics of Morality in America. Her other book includes Women in the Church of God, In Christ, Making a Sanctified World, and she's also a contributor for the forthcoming book, A New Origin Story, The 1619 Project, which is due out in November of 2021. Dr. Butler is a historian of African American and American religion, and her research and writing spans African American religion and history, race, politics, and evangelicalism. Dr. Butler is currently a contributor for MSNBC Daily, and has also written for The New York Times, The Washington Post, CNN, NBC, and The Guardian. You can see her in the recent PBS series, The Black Church in America, and the forthcoming American Experience on Billy Graham on PBS. So glad you could join me today. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. And so one of the ways I like to begin is kind of just asking for your personal working definitions of words like contemplation and or mysticism what they mean to you and maybe how you see them lived out in in the world. Yeah, I think for me personally, I think a lot of people think about these words as being passive words, but I would say that I have really been influenced by Ignatian tradition of St. Ignatius of Loyola. And I think about that in terms of how the Jesuits move through life. I mean, they don't spend a lot of time in prayer. They spend a lot of time doing things. They, you know, step back when they need to. And there's the, you know, the spiritual exercises, of course, that help in order to sort of think through about how to be a contemplative in a different kind of way. And so I think that for me, being a contemplative doesn't mean that you escape society or you escape the world, but that you find a place to anchor yourself firmly, first of all, and then secondarily take care of those things, you know, in the ways in which you need to take care of them. And that might not be the way that people traditionally think that you need to take care of your religious or spiritual needs. Yeah. And do you think or do you see contemplation or mysticism playing a role in social action today? Not in the traditional ways, no. I I don't. I mean, and I think that a lot of times, if we go through traditional ways of thinking about what contemplation means, you know, you set yourself apart, you think about things, which I think, you know, is a very good way to be if you're going to be an activist. But I also think that an activist means that you have to be active, right? And if we have this tension between contemplation and activity, then there's times where you need to be active and there's times that you don't. And I think that probably, you know, I'll describe it like a Depeche Mode song. You have to get the balance right. You have to think about how you balance that out. And I think for a lot of people, especially right now, the, you know, the rapidity and the speed in which things happen in the world, sometimes you don't have time to think. Sometimes you have to actually act. But if you haven't done that kind of work before to sort of think through then and to sort of ponder where you are, then I think it becomes much more difficult. So kind of in the sense of the practice, the engagement and the practice cultivates 
um, the action in a more immediate response to the things which we need to immediately respond to. Yeah, you you have to be prepared because, in other words, I mean, I think it's like people have an idea, like, I'm going to go, you know, I'm a church historian, so I'm going to use a, a an example. People think that, you know, the old monastics like Simon the Stylite, who's set up on top of a pole and contemplated, right, is the way that you should be, or you should be like a Buddha, you know, and you should, you know, pull yourself away from everything. And I think that those kinds of content, you know, I'm not saying that's wrong. I just think that that doesn't work for some of us. It doesn't work for somebody like me who is very reactive to what's going on, especially for things that I, you know, care deeply about. So I think, you know, you you work through that in the ways that you need to. And for some people, you might think, oh, maybe you're just going around and around in circles. I'm not. What I'm saying is, is that contemplation and a contemplative life mean different things to different people. And not everybody is going to be able to, you know, go away and be on an island or be in a monastic place or to have quiet in their house because they got, you know, three kids and a husband or a wife or a spouse and they've got to deal with things that you just can't. In today's world, it's very difficult to be contemplative, but you have to figure out ways in which to do it that fit your who you are. Yeah. And I think, you know, to your point earlier, it seems like a lot of people can also use uh, being a contemplative or having a contemplative life as an excuse to not fully engage in those things as well. Yeah. And it means that they have the luxury not to. And I think that's really important to say is that, you know, most people in the world, I'm thinking about Afghanistan this week, especially, don't have the luxury to stop and think about what's happening or how to think through it because they have to be reactive. Their very lives depend on it. And so I think it's also important to remember that these activities can sometimes be activities of the privilege and not of people who need, who really do need time to think about things because they don't have time. They can't. They have to continue to work. They have to continue to run. They have to continue to try to, you know, figure out how to make their lives better. Mm, Yeah. In a 2020 piece that you wrote titled, In a Season of Reckonings, Forgiveness is Not Forgetting, You wrote, displays of forgiveness do not lead to forgetting, but to remembering all the wrongs, all the murders, all the pain, all the suffering we and our ancestors have experienced in America. So my question for you from this and that incredible piece is, when it comes to racism in America, what other Christian practices might do more harm than good? You know, when we're talking about this idea of maybe contemplation can also be an excuse or, you know, a way to not engage um, when we fail to engage in the fullness of of these things, how long you got? I mean, I think this is this is one of those moments where I'm just going to say, I'm sorry, I'm going to offend a lot of people. I think the Christian practice of just leave it to Jesus and everything is going to be all right is basically bullshit. This is a this is a podcast, so I can say bullshit. And I think that that's number one, number two, the ways in which you know, especially American Christians like to think about themselves as their relationship with just Jesus and themselves is stupid. It, it doesn't have anything to do with that. Jesus lived in a community. He had to deal with racism. I always use the excuse of the, the example of the Syrophoenician woman to say even Jesus was racist. He didn't want to give her anything. She had to remind him and tell him. So, I mean, if your Lord and Savior can be racist, you can be too. And I think that what my, you know, I wrote a whole book about this, so let's just put that out there, White Evangelical Racism, The Politics of Morality in America. What I think is the problem in America is that so much of American Christianity is individualistic. You know, we sing these, you know, nice little worship songs that don't mean anything, that that are focused in on how much we love Jesus and not how much we love each other. 
And we can see the ramifications of that right now with the way that, you know, people aren't getting vaccinated. People could care less about people going hungry, people, you know, willing to put forth ide ideology instead of, you know, true Christian charity. I could go on all day long. But I mean, the fact of the matter is, is I found this very wanting. And I think that it's a horrible witness. I just do. Yeah. And and speaking of that book, your book, White Evangelical Racism, The Politics of Morality in America. Yeah, you examine this incongruence, this deep incongruence in white evangelicalism, like how white evangelicals often claim claim morality amid supporting immoral acts and immoral ways of being, case in point, the, the list you just you just offered. How do you think that this understanding or this understanding of that incongruence can help guide anti-racist movements or work in America? Well, I think it's a starting point. I mean, I, I wrote the whole book as somebody asked me, what do you want to have out of this book? I said, I did what I wanted to have out of this book, which was tell everybody, is this you? This is the way you behave? So that's one. But I think the incongruence is going to have to change when realities change. I mean, I think one of the things that is very difficult right now for a lot of evangelicals in this country to see is that, you know, them harping on critical race theory at the same time while they're not getting vaccinated and their kids are dying are, is pretty bad, right? And you know, they're worried about the wrong things. And this is this is just, it's, it's a waste of our time. It, it really is. In a world in which time is of the essence, it's a waste of our time to have to be dealing with these kinds of, you know, issues about, you know, so-called morality. And I think that it's really important to understand that when we, when I say morality, it's about not just, you know, treating your neighbors right and everything else. I say about these great moral issues of our time. Are we going to feed people? Are we going to make sure that everybody has a living wage? Are we going to make sure that everybody has voting rights? I mean, there are moral issues and then there are moral issues. And I think that for evangelicals and others in this country, moral issues have only centered around personal moral issues as opposed to, you know, structural moral issues that should be resolved like racism. And so when you ask me this question about, you know, how does this make somebody anti-racist? And I think the first thing you have to address in, in anything about, you know, racism or anti-racism is to realize the racist structures. And if we can't get people to agree that the structure is racist, how do we get to anti-racism in the first place? I appreciate what you said about it being a waste of our time and you know, seeing that as almost a, a distraction of um, a large group of people being so individualistic and harmful to the world at large and, and not even not even touching the structures that we're really after. So so how do we hold that that sense of urgency and action alongside? Yeah, along the, alongside the fact that, you know, evangelicals that that are in this space are really. Uh, gaining momentum in and of themselves? Or is that just what we? It, it seems like in the news? I think you think that they're gaining in momentum. I don't think that they are. I, I think that people like to think this because they have a, a, a way to amplify their voices in the public square. But I think that the bigger issue right now is not even evangelicals. It's, it's really about the ways in which people believe disinformation. And that's including evangelicals, whether they believe in QAnon or they believe other kinds of, you know, fantasies about the virus or anything else. That's our, actually our biggest issue right now, alongside of racism, because the disinformation and racism go hand in hand. If you are inclined to believe all these things, then you'll be inclined to believe other things, right? 
And there are just some truths that we need to grapple with in this country. And I think that at this particular time that we're in, which is really dangerous for a lot of different reasons, I I sort of despair about thinking about people being able to think straight with their heads on their shoulders, to be honest with you. I don't know that, you know, the average, you know, Christian in this country who misses going to church because of the vaccine and decides to go anyway, hopefully they go masked up or maybe they don't, or maybe they like Sean Fuchs and others who have decided that they don't care about that and they should just march and be out there with white supremacists in, you know, Oregon, right? You know, because that just happened not too long ago. You know, those are the people that I look at and I think, I'm sure we have a lot of hope here, you know. At the same time where all these people are hoping that Jesus is just going to come back, I'm like, Jesus might come back, but he ain't coming back for y'all. <laughs> I mean, I, I say it in the most Texas way possible. He's not coming back for you, okay? He's not coming back for you because, I mean, basically, you're not you're not his people. And I think that it's really, it's it's... It's something that people need to hear right now and that they don't hear enough that maybe you've been you've been waiting, you've been found wanting. And maybe the result of all of this is the chaos that we see right now because we can't even come together to just wear a mask to treat other people well. I mean, you know, just to think about somebody else to do the golden rule. I mean, if people can't even do the golden rule, well, how do we think that anything else is gonna last? So you know, I know we started this off like you asking about contemplation thing. What I contemplate a lot is that the fact that we don't have people in this country that I think that I could rely on if something really bad happened. Because basically, I don't think I could rely on their Christian charity. I don't know that I could rely on their common sense, to be quite honest, to do the right thing because they they are so much willing to be involved in thinking, you know, thinking things that will harm others and even harm themselves. So where the hell did this Jesus come from? Is this just a product of America? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a product of a lot of different things. And I, I go through that a lot in my book. But I think, you know, these idealized Jesuses that are always going to be there to support the nation and always to be there to support, you know, white male patriarchy, right? Maybe that sounds like a misnomer to put it like that, but I think that's the best way to say it. You know, and these ideas about what family should be. I think that all of this stuff really has, you know, hurt us in certain kinds of ways. And if you put your moral center on these kinds of constructs that, you know, nobody in the Bible had like a really great, like, you know, father, mother, two kids, family. I mean, look at Solomon. How many wives? I mean, you know, how, how much stuff is going on? You know, look at, you know, somebody like Paul who didn't treat his mother right. And yeah, it's, we could go on, right? There's all kinds of crazy families in scripture. And if we, if we claim to say we want to look at scripture to be the model, then look at all of scripture. Look at how people treat their treated people. I mean, no different than what's happening today. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, back to what you said earlier about, you know, Jesus being racist. I know that's hard for people to hear. No, I, but I, that's important for people to hear. Like you say, I mean, that and that a woman had to explain that to him and teach him. Yeah. But I mean, nobody wants to be taught now. Everybody believes that they know everything because they look something up or they believe a certain television station or a certain, you know, personality or a certain president, depending on which one you want to pick, mm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that way it seems like contemplation or space away when it's really trying to gather clarity 
um, could be really healthy in order to respond properly to the, the things in which we find ourselves present and awake to, as Therese Taylor Stinson says? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there's times where you just should shut up. <laughs> Honestly, I mean, it, shutting up is, is not a bad thing. I mean, I, I talk a lot on social media, but I don't think that I need to say everything about everything. I mean, I'm just like right now, I'm at a loss for words about Afghanistan. There's, a not, there's tons of things that are horrible about it. Do I need to say something about it? Mm, yeah, probably not, because I'm not, you know, that's not part of the world that I'm knowledgeable about. But at the same time, I'm very fearful about it because I know that this means that there's going to be an uptick in, you know, fundamentalist religion. I know that this actually gives a lot of oxygen to people who are thinking about these kinds of regimes, whether that's Islamic or Christian, that don't treat women well, that, you know, have a very you know strong patriarchal structure. It's a time of strong men. And we have to figure out how we're going to come out of this. Yeah. Would you mind sharing a little bit more about your work as a contributor for the forthcoming book, A New Origin Story, The 1619 Project? Sure. Um, this particular chapter in the 1619 book came about in part because I had contacted Nicole Hannah-Jones back when the first project came out and said, I don't think you can really write this story or do whatever you're going to do with the story next without talking about Black religion. You have to talk about, you know, the contributions that African-Americans have made in the religious realm. And so when they started doing the book, they contacted me and so the chapter, without giving it away, is to talk about the ways in which the Black church has always been a challenge and the, um, how do I want to say, the fulcrum about democracy in this country. In other words, how has the Black church always kept America to account about its foundational documents? In other words, how, why is it that, you know, you say that this is supposed to be, you know, for everyone when, in fact, you didn't, you know, you didn't give that to African-Americans, you didn't do this for Native Americans, you didn't do this, you didn't do this, you didn't do this, right? And these founding documents, which, you know, say all men are created equal, we seem to have to continue as African-Americans to remind everyone in this country that all people are created equal, that we are endowed with certain unalienable rights, and that there's lots of people here in this country who don't think we should have any rights, and we need to continue to keep fighting for them all the time. And so that's what this chapter is about in the 1619 Project book. And I, I'm proud of it. It took a long time to write, and it was really difficult because this book has been fact-checked so many times, it's ridiculous. But that's because of all the, you know, the fear. And I expect that when it comes out in November that everybody will lose their mind, but, you know, it's okay. Yeah. Dr. Butler, what are some things that give you hope amid all of the things we've kind of discussed so far? I don't know. I mean, that's a good question. I, I have to say, I if, if there was a character that I would associate myself with, it would probably be Chicken Little. Uh, but, um, you know, even Chicken Little had to be, you know, hopeful that at the end of the day he could go home and live in some nice little hutch and, you know, maybe have a roof over his head and have something to eat. I mean, what I'm hopeful for is that those of us who, you know, who are thinking, who are trying to act, people who are activists and stuff, are not, are going to continue even with incredible odds. I get hopeful about people who are willing to stand up and, and speak the truth. I get hopeful about um, people who are willing to help others. I get hopeful about, you know, when I'm in the classroom and a, a student gets it or they, you know, say, I just didn't know this and I learned something, you know, those are the kind of little things that give me hope. I'm not sure that I'm hopeful about climate change, 
or am I hopeful about wars or am I hopeful about the coronavirus? I mean, that to me is are hopeless things. But I think, you know, the thing about the virus, and I will say this, is that what's been hopeful is to see how rapidly people have adjusted to thinking about things, whether that's, you know, getting a vaccine or research that's happened or how people have, you know, tried to come together to help each other. That makes me hopeful. And for those of us who've tried to do the right thing all through this, you know, time of virus, where we've tried to wear our mask and we've tried to think about other people and try to be as careful as we possibly could be, that gives me hope because it means that not everybody is a selfish son of a bitch. Yeah. And it, I mean, you remind me to be looking for and looking at those things more and putting my energy towards those things and and towards increasing those things and expanding the frequency of of the hope. Yeah, I think um, we tend to think about, you know, whether it's contemplation or activism, all these things on a big scale. I think we have to think about them as the everyday quotidian things that we do that can engender hope or engender a space of maybe this is going to change. Maybe hopefully somebody's going to get it today. It might not be a hundred somebodies, but maybe it's one somebody. Maybe we can get one somebody to change their mind about getting a vaccination. Maybe we can help somebody, you know, in a classroom or in whatever our everyday work and our everyday lives are. Those are the, the little things that add up, right? And I think that taking that instead of just thinking about the big things that might, you know, overwhelm us all is a way to take a bite out of this life that's very different. And then that in and of itself is contemplation about where you are, where where you are, when you are, and how you are in society. Yeah, well said. Who is someone or some people that embody mysticism for you? Uh, you know, that's, a, that's an interesting question. I think... Um, Sorry, nobody alive. <laughs> nobody alive. I'm, I, I was going to be real honest with you. I don't, you know, I'm not the kind of person. I really, honestly, you know, I. this is part of my Catholic tradition. I don't think about, you know, people who are alive as people who are helping me. I see people who've been in certain, you know, situations. I was thinking about um, one of my friends, uh, Eve Trout Powell, who teaches at Penn, wrote a book about Josephine Baquita, who is a, a who's a saint. And, and, you know, I think about those kind of people or St. Ignatius or others who've gone through, you know, tremendous trials, right? Or to think about, you know, the everyday lives of, you know, Black people in, in America. I spent a lot of time when I was doing graduate work reading slave narratives. And I think about those are the people that really speak to me in terms of having to have hope in the midst of really horrible situation of being enslaved and having your children sold, having to, you know, been raped or, you know, beaten, all of these things. I, I think about that. And I think about those are people who give me hope because they managed to take, to take a lot of things that happened that were bad and turn them into something good. Do I think about people like that today? I mean, I think there's people who do certain things in their own communities that that help. But I don't look to people who are alive as a sense of, you know, this person focus me, focuses me about contemplation or hope or anything because, you know, again, I'm a historian. I tend to look at it through a historical lens than I do a present day lens. I mean, we kind of went over this a little bit earlier, but I'm wondering in your personal work and experience have you seen social justice work, any kind of activism point to the need or experience of a contemplative life? We've kind of discussed that, but 
you know, yeah, I think I'll, I'll be straight up with the answer. No. You know why? Because you can't do this while you're trying to do be an activist. The, the, the whole thing about what's going on in this country and you think about, you know, the kinds of responses that African-American people especially have had to make to whether that's been Mike Brown or the myriad to Trayvon Martin. God, I, you know, there's just so many people. I could just go through this list. There's no time to be contemplative because shit is happening all the time. And this is the point I was trying to get at in the first part, but I think it's really important for me to say it this strongly so people understand what I mean, is that how can you be contemplative and take a step back when the situation in the society and the murderous ways in which Black people get treated in this country continue to happen on a regular loop? How can you do anything? How can you have time to think? How can you have time to step back and replenish yourself? This is why we have a lot of activists who've committed suicide. We've had activists who just said, I burnt out, I'm tired. I mean, I think as a Black person and a Black woman in this country, you know, just the idea that I could take time off to be contemplative is, you know, A, a blessing, but B, it's privilege. Because, you know, even to say the word contemplative at this moment is is a is a word that it, it says privilege. And that, you know, I, I'm not trying to make you feel bad about the, the podcast or anything, but it's a word that says privilege. It means that you have time. And most people don't have time. They don't have time to be, you know, think about things or to sit back with a scripture or a book and think about stuff in that traditional way that we think about being contemplative because stuff is happening in their communities all the time that they have to respond to. Yeah. I love what you said that even to say the word contemplative at this moment is to, to say privilege and to reveal that too. I think often about, you know, the people who, who go off for a silent retreat paying, you know, hundreds and hundreds of dollars when, People are people are dying. People are hungry. People are. Yeah. I mean, I would love to take people in my community in Philadelphia, someplace where you could just be quiet in in the woods for a weekend because people get hearing gunshots and stuff. They hear, you know, the sound of screeching tires. They hear all kinds of things. Just to even just be silent, not even to think about anything, but just to be silent. Silence is actually, you know, something that you get with money. So, I mean, I think that's a different way to think about all of this. And maybe I hope, you know, somebody's listening to this and you're like, damn, I wasn't expecting her to say what she said. I think we have to think about the ways in which even being contemplative is privilege. To have silence is a privilege. To exist in this world of cacophony and violence and, and anger and, and illness is in silence is, you know, something. Yeah, silence as a as a rich person's reward is yeah as privilege is mm-hmm. it really is, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't strive for it. It doesn't mean that you know I hope that people can get it. I think you know it's just something that we don't re- recognize as a privilege when we in fact really should recognize it as such. And also to your point and some of the earlier things you've said in striving for it, we should be looking to share it and to offer it to others. Because it's another thing that we've taken as this individualistic, this, uh, you know, private retreat, this silent individual retreat away from the world or stepping aside, you know, without without offering that space to others, too. Yeah, there we are. Yeah, I really appreciate everything you said. I really appreciate the one somebody, what you were saying about the changing one somebody was very, very powerful to me. And the association between contemplation and privilege is a really important reflection point, especially for white contemplatives. Yeah, yeah, because I think, you know, that 
whole construct just means that you have money. It just means that you have the means, you have money, you have time. Those are things that most people don't have. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining and thanks so much for taking the time to be with me. Yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome. Thanks for taking the time to listen to today's episode. To support this work and get sneak peeks of new episodes, join me at patreon.com slash Cassidy Hall. The podcast is created and edited by me, Cassidy Hall. Today's episode features the song Trapezoid Instrumental by Emily Sankofa, which she has generously allowed us to use. Please find this song and more from Emily Sankofa on your favorite streaming platform like Spotify or by visiting e-sankofa.com. The podcast is created in partnership with The Christian Century, a progressive ecumenical magazine based in Chicago. The podcast is also created in partnership with Enfleshed, an organization focused on spiritual nourishment for collective liberation. For liturgical resources, head over to enfleshed.com. <laughs>